From Boca Raton, Florida, this is Behind the Bima. On this episode, the rabbis are joined by Sirli Besser, author of Jewish Biographies in Sfarim and contributing editor at Mishpacha Magazine. Sirli discusses how he got started as a writer, explains how he handles imperfections of Gedolim when writing biographies, and shares how he handles feedback and criticism on social media. Also, what do the rabbis find more stressful, getting ready for Pesach or the Yomim Noroyim? An update on the Myers-Leonard story, and a recap of the Rally to Free a Local Aguna. All this and more, Behind the Bima. Good evening and welcome. It's Wednesday night, 9 p.m. I'm your host, Rabbi Ephraim Goldberg, joined by my dear friends and colleagues, Rabbi Philip Moskowitz and Rabbi Josh Brody. And we're here to take you... Behind the Bima. That is correct. We're here to go behind the Bima. We've got a very exciting show for you. A dear friend, Surly Besser, and it promises to be a fascinating exchange of ideas. Surly is not afraid to lay it out and to defend his positions and to talk about uncomfortable topics. Though we're going to talk about inspirational topics because Behind the Beam is not a controversial show. We don't thrive on controversy. We thrive on inspiration. Uh, we've got some follow-ups for you on the Aguna situation. We've got a follow-up on Myers-Leonard. We've got a lot to talk about tonight, but first... Our sponsors. I want to thank our dear sponsors, the Mueller family, our dear friends, the Mueller's, who sponsored in the commemoration of David's new book. David is a prolific author. He's written now several books. Our dear friend David Mueller, and uh, his new book is called "Growing Up with Houdini." His father was a big supporter of the magic industry. We had an illusionist on a few weeks ago. Since then, we are uh, aspiring illusionists. Aspiring illusionists ourselves, watching YouTube videos. When I say some of us, I don't mean <laughs> me. Um, but uh, David, is, <laughs> David is legit, and David's family are legit. And he has a great new book that tells the story of growing up with Houdini. And uh, I've uh, looked through it. I've read parts of it. And it's really a wonderful story, and I highly recommend it. So I'm not sure it's even available for sale. You have to get in touch with David directly. Will it be audible? The best day to get him is on his birthday. So be in touch with David Mueller. You definitely want to read that book. Also, we have a co-sponsor tonight, which is very exciting to me and uh, it's sort of a surprise to me. My Machatanam, my daughter Atara's in-laws, Bruce and Jill Minsky, our dear family, are sponsoring, co-sponsoring tonight in commemoration, or in memory, rather, of my wife's grandparents, uh, Aaron Halevi and Esther Goldsmith, my mother-in-law's parents, and Yisrael Nassan and Chaya Esther Brookstein, my father-in-law's parents, and the Minskys, our dear family, so generous of you. Thank you so much. We're looking forward to having Pesach and to uh, spending time. And uh, thank you so much for that generosity. We really appreciate it. Gentlemen, what's new in your life? What do you want to begin with? Love it. I found uh, a Miami Boys Choir on iTunes. I had no idea that they were there. And love that, Rabbi What did he say? <laughs> One of but our I'm listeners you, already I... commenting. Love how Rabbi Brody's dress changes based on the guest. Well, I'm, I'm happy saying, that our guests have picked up on that. Where's the hat? Some of us went to, you know, the Yeshiva Shvelt, and some of us, uh, you know, might not have gone. So just uh, getting back with my, my roots. Anyway, I, speaking of which, I was listening to iTunes today, and I found that Miami Boys Choir is actually on iTunes. And I went back to the 1984, 1986 album. I was listening to Bisiata Deshmaya, Mehera, My kids were like, what is this? It's amazing. We miss all that good music. It's been on iTunes for a while. Welcome to the party. But I will say, there is something that is special about Miami Boys Choir. When you listen to it, I don't know about you guys, I know exactly where I was, what year it was, what grade I was in, when that song came out. There's something very nostalgic it about is. their songs, the ability to take you back in time. 
I'll I'll match you and I'll actually up you by telling you not only does it transport you into places and times where you first heard those songs, but, you know, I don't know, my age, we we know a number of those singers and soloists in them. They were on those albums, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you listen? You remember um, the Don't Talk Just Davin? So you remember how that song begins, Don't Talk Just Davin? Yeah, who did it? Baruch Hashem. And you remember this very high voice that says, It's my buddy Shai Stern. That's the Baruch Hashem. Yeah. Some are some are members of Belgraton Synagogue. Some members Avram Bellazon. We've got some That's members. Right. We've got some prominent Moshe members Shaket. who are members. Moshe Shaket, absolutely. My brother in law, Moshe Brookstein, was a member of the Miami Boys Choir. Were they ever based in Miami? I, I did was not think about that. that today. I was thinking on the on the way to school. I'm like, why are they called Miami Boys Choir if all these boys are from Brooklyn or New Jersey? It's it's this time we had on Yerachmiel Begun. It's time. First of all, you'd have to pronounce his name correctly. It's Yerachmiel <laughs> but, but, but I said that. I, I just don't want, want to make sure recording. we don't insult right. him. I want to make sure we don't insult him. That's all. This is exactly the conversation where people are like, why'd you advertise you're bringing on a guest and then you guys just talk about stuff before he gets on? <laughs> we, we get two kinds of emails, almost always from family members, but the emails say the following. <laughs> half of the emails are like, half the emails are, what's with the banter? It needs to be organized. You need an agenda, an itinerary, talking points. You got to be a real show. And, uh, and it's really all about the guest. And, and the other half of the emails are like, why do you even bring guests? The best part are when you guys just talk, when you let your hair down, proverbial hair down, yeah. we're, we're two and a half We used way. to be able to. We are two and a half way on the way to no hair to put down. So anyway, we get, we get both are you sides. Getting, are you getting ready for that big haircut before Pesach? <laughs> big Pesach haircut. So here's a question for, for you, Rabbi Moskowitz, Rabbi Brody. Yeah. Which is a more stressful time of year, before the Yom Narayim or before Pesach? As a rav, which is more stressful? A very different type I'll, I'll take this one first. I find them very different types of stress. I don't find that, again, I don't give Shabbos, I got all Shabbos Shuvah. So I have to acknowledge that out front. So maybe your answer would be different because of that. But I don't find that the holiday, the rabbinic responsibilities on the holiday of Pesach itself is what's stressful. It's drushes, it's shiram, nothing too much. The weeks beforehand, though, are so overwhelming with text messages and WhatsApp. I don't know about you, but people are WhatsApping me from stores 24-7. Your phone is exploding all the time. Oftentimes, they're questions that could be easily searched on OU or CRC. But um, but that's the stressful part. It's very overwhelming. There's a lot of information. Come to run, you're balancing the obligations of there's like a Rosh Hashanah drasha and a Yom Kippur drasha, which is definitely a weightier type of drasha. And also you're, you're focused intensely on personal growth. So you're balancing personal intensity with, you know, wanting to come up with drushas and shiram that are really going to inspire people and set the agenda for the year. So there are different types of stress. One's more of like a busy trying to get back to everyone, making sure you're getting responses to everyone. And one's more balancing your own personal growth, your own personal introspection with, you know, wanting to come up with, with really inspirational drushas. I agree. I think that's an accurate description. They're each overwhelming in their own way. I, I would I would differentiate a little bit differently, not not to disagree, but just to add that before the Yom Noraim, it's an internal preparation because there's a lot the seeding and the chazanim and the and the bali kriya and the bali tkiya. It's internal 
a lot of details. You got to make sure that when the people show up and they just have the privilege of showing up, that it's all right. Pesach has a lot of that external. Like you were saying, you got to sell chametz. You got a billion shilas coming in every direction. You got to make sure that you're covering your responsibilities in your own home. Um, you got to prepare drushas and or Shabbos HaGadol drusha with it. So there's just a lot of internal, external. I think they're different in those ways. But, but both of them are about trying to get yourself and your family ready while serving the community. I just wanted to follow up our... our um, our listener, and if you're listening to the podcast later, first of all, don't forget to rate and review. Um, but if you're listening, check out on YouTube because you'll see Rabbi Brody does in fact change his outfit depending on the guest, but he does more than that. He also changes his background, and I don't mean a virtual background. He literally, and yes, Shulcinic literally changes his background. Dude, so when we, had on, when we had on Naftali Bennett, we had an Israeli flag behind Rabbi Brody. And tonight, for Shirley Besser, although I don't think he'll be impressed, Rabbi Brody, tonight Rabbi Brody has behind him on the one wall a picture of Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach and in the bookshelf a COVID shirim. So, Rabbi Brody, do, is, there, is there a shtickle from the COVID shirim you want to share with us tonight? No, but I will share that this picture was actually, this is a custom job right now. It was made by a friend of mine who was in Taurus Moshe, Ari Cohen, and he signed it on the bottom here. And um, he drew this gold uh, design around. Mm. This is all from, from Mincha Shlomo, Simon Olive and Bays. It's all face. Wow, that's amazing. That is, pretty, wow. that is very special. Yeah, that is very special. We have oh, another one. Coming back this to one. your previous question, which do you get more yeah, geared up for, Shabbat Agadol or Shabbat Shuvah? Um, I'd say they're different. We're impressed, Rabbi Brady. We're impressed. Shabbos Agadol and Shabbos Shuvah are very, are very different. And they, it, this is my my perspective. There's no there's no one way or right way to do it. Every rav, every rabbi figures it out their style, their rhythm, their theme, how they do Shabbos Shuvah, how they do Shabbos Agadol. Um, one one person who I feel close to and love who lives elsewhere um, told me that he saw the topic for our Shabbos Agadol. Joshua was very excited. He said, I'm also super excited about my Rav's topic. Let me send you. And he forwarded me, Drusha Shabbos Gadol. You ready for the topic? Yeah. In quotes, Pesach Shechal B'Motzei Shabbos. <laughs> that's the topic. So I'm not, I'm not knocking it. In fact, that's probably much more authentic. I think the way Shabbos, this is not the time to go through it, but in fact, in, 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 until recent times, Rabbanim only gave drushas twice a year. I know right now we're going to hear from a lot of people who'd like to go back <laughs> to that. Go back to that. I got it. I got it. Go back to that. Okay. But they, they spoke twice a year, Shabbos morning. It was Shabbos Godon, Shabbos Shuva. They gave Shirim, they Paskind. The rabbis were very busy in other ways, but they only gave two talks, two major talks twice a year. Um, so for me, there's a big difference between the two. Shabbos Shuva, I try to focus on personal growth. So, you know, we've talked about. Um, extreme ownership, we've talked about a commitment to Shabbos, we've talked about different themes that are about how we define, how we see ourselves, who we want to become and how we get there, what are the obstacles and, and how do we get around them. Shabbos HaGadol is a little bit more of a, and obviously there's a lot of Torah in both, I try to have a lot of Torah in both, Shabbos HaGadol is more of a Torah topic and um, and then from it emerges a uh, sort of state, of state of the Union for the community a charge, a mission statement, the community, and some thoughts about reflecting on the community, which is made up of the individuals in it. That's what we're going to do this Motzei Shabbos. Thank you for asking, 9 p.m. this Motzei Shabbos on the YouTube channel. You can come live at the Rand Sanctuary, Bokerton Synagogue, or watch it online from the comfort of your couch, which makes me wonder why you would come in person. Um, so what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about reflecting on Corona and having been apart and what it will mean to come back together and why we should come back together and why that's important and how we do it. Rabbi Moskowitz and I are going to be doing a live commentary on the uh, <laughs> in the chat on the chat. Yeah, why why are you, why are you giving the drasha? 
I'm on record. I think something will be lost by having your cell phone in your pocket during the Shabbos of Drusha. There was something special about Shabbos afternoon. I get why you're doing it, Motzei Shabbos. But as the listener, there was an aura in the room that that I am nervous will be uh, will be missing. But I, yeah, but I will, I will, I will, I will add to that that uh, you're, again, it's not false flattery. Anyone knows your Shabbos Shuva, Shabbos Gadol Drusha are phenomenal. I know personally, even though I'm a rabbi in the community, I'm also a consumer. I get to listen to you. That's one of the privileges of my job. But they're amazing and they're really inspiring. And there's a reason why so many people come out. It's it's an opportunity for our whole community to come and learn together. The diversity of our community, different age groups, different affiliations, different levels of observance. And it's a really beautiful scene. I, I give the credit to the community who have forever seen Shabbos Shuva and Shabbos Agadol as a community learning event. People who don't ordinarily attend, people who learn a lot on their own, people who never learn, people who are very happy in their segregated segments of the community. But the community has responded. You know, I always thank everybody. It's the opening line of each of those drushes is, thank you for being here. Otherwise, I would be standing here all alone. And it really is a beautiful sight to see that of our eight in non-corona time, Shabbos morning, eight or nine in Yanim, right. everybody comes together. So there's now, twice a year on the calendar we can we can be together, which is great. Now, newcomers to the community don't get the full experience. And I'm going to make Rabbi Goldberg tear up a little bit right now. But there used to be a very, very, very special person in our community, Rabbi Klein, um, who used to get up and make the announcement before both Shabbos Shuvah and Shabbos Agadol, inviting everyone to the community. And while we have another esteemed member of our community now make the announcements, Dr. David Walton, not the same. Rabbi Klein was uh, was really one of the Lamed Vav Zadikim. He was a very special Jew. And uh, that also had such an impact on the community when he got up there and gave chashivas to the Rav and encouraged everyone to come and to participate. That inc- that contributed enormously to the aura, to the atmosphere of these two drushas. And I love it when he would, he would say that he reviewed the sources. You know, he would encourage everyone to go and look at them as well. He was, he was a Holocaust yeah. survivor. He had an illustrious career as a Rav himself in Montreal. He, he had smicha in Montreal as a survivor. He came to Montreal. He wasn't going to actually go into the Rabbanas, but there were a group of uh, people, I think survivors, who surrounded him and uh, kind of pushed him into it. And he, he had a PhD from McGill, but he ended up going into the Rabbanas. Wow. And, um, and yeah, absolutely. It was, it, was very, it was very moving, and I'm looking forward to it. Get butterflies. I get nervous, anxious. All st- it's, not, it's not nervous that you're nervous. It's more there's, there's an... A butterflies and an anxiousness that you put your heart and soul into something and you are excited to to share it. I want to bring our guest on momentarily. Very excited that he's agreed to join. Wasn't simple, um, but really happy that he is uh, here. We're going to get to the update on the Aguna situation. And uh, last week on uh, Friday, I met with Myers Leonard, the member of the Miami Heat, who um, said that terribly, terribly offensive, unfortunate comment in a gaming situation. Uh, we had the opportunity uh, to meet. I'll tell you the background of that circumstance. And... Um, you know, he didn't ask me to share, but I asked his permission if I could share about that conversation. We've been in touch um, since then, so we'll get back to that afterwards. But it's really an honor and a privilege momentarily to welcome on Surly Besser. He's a contributing editor of Mishpacha magazine, and all the comments and texts I got today that were like busy. I, I was on the cover already. I don't need to bring anybody on. I've been there, done that. No favors needed. I'm the monster. Everybody knows I'm the monster. Yeah, Brody's angling for the next cover. The yeah, I think we should have room. a behind the bima on the cover. I don't think they've ever done so, that before. They have not done that yet. We'll see how tonight goes. We'll see how tonight goes. But Surly's a contributing editor to Mishbacha Magazine. Frankly, that's not even the primary reason uh, we're having him on. We're having him on because he has written biographies 
that you cannot read those biographies and, and not be transformed and be somebody different. He wrote a biography on Rav Shlomo Freifels, Rav Meir Zlatowitz, Rav Shailah of Kastir, uh, the Chassam Sofa, the Tasha Rebbe, Rav Lezer Geldzaler. He wrote a book, Just Love Them, Rav David Schrenk, uh, save for a book, Nishmas. He has uh, written uh, incredible, inspiring books. And uh, we're going to have the opportunity and privilege to be able to speak to him about that and so much more. It is a privilege, Sruli Besser, to welcome you to Behind the Bima. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I have to say, talk about covers. You have a very photogenic group of rabbis that happens to be uniquely photogenic. <laughs> it be sure. It's Pretty the Florida many. shine. It's the Florida shine. We would shine. have to do some kind of a Sports Illustrated matzo with the three of you. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. It out. When, when you when you write the Arts Girl biography on Rabbi Moskowitz, he will be very photogenic, <laughs> photogenic on the cover, no doubt, no sure, doubt about sure. it. So we I appreciate it, you know. Thank you. Yeah, um, you've you've come through for us many times in the magazine, even last minute. So I'm really repaying the favor. It's it's a pleasure. Oh, to it's be my pleasure. Well, if he's ever now, busy, last minute, you can just call me. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, this really is a uh, prolific author. Everybody knows, and often he's on the other side of the microphone interviewing people. Uh, you don't see him be interviewed very often at all, and it is a favor that he's doing by being on. I knew I'd get to him when I said, come on, I want to be able to promote my favorite new Haggadah, the Chsam Sofer Haggadah. I sent him a picture yesterday that my wife, every year she gets me a gift for uh, Pesach, this was the Haggadah. I didn't I didn't prompt her. This was the Haggadah that she ordered, presented to me yesterday. I sent Shirley a picture, and I got him on by telling him we're going to promote the Haggadah. Best new Haggadah out there. Everybody should buy it. Where can they get the uh, Haggadah, Shirley? It doesn't have to be the best. It just has to be good. Baruch Hashem. They're, they're all wonderful. <laughs> a lot of nice, a lot of nice I got this, Baruch Hashem. Some say if it doesn't need me to advertise his timeless <laughs> and enduring relevance. Baruch Hashem. I think that that uh, it's the right Haggadah for this year, for 2020, 2021. Uh, coming from what we just, you know, the year we've undergone collectively, the message of this Haggadah is, is very, very special. Where could they get it? Uh, certainly on artschool.com. And I would imagine in Jewish bookstores everywhere, art school's distribution is, is fantastic. They get it. They get it. I'm shocked at where they reach, how quickly and how efficiently. Amazing. Amazing. So, even um, Montreal. But, even, even the Montreal. That's wild. I yeah. forgot. I promised somebody I was going to not say, you know, we get unsolicited feedback after every episode. And one yeah. of the unsolicited pieces of feedback I got from somebody very close to me was, stop saying amazing. So I, I'm going to make an effort to not say amazing. That doesn't not, mean I don't think what doesn't mean I don't think what you're saying is amazing. But I'm not allowed to I say it anymore. That. I'll, I'll take just this incredible. one amazing. One amazing covers it all. So, surely, as I was saying, you know, you're not often interviewed, and I think one of the remarkable things about you is that you don't make it about you. You make it about other people. That's what you've dedicated your career and your life to, writing biographies and making it about Torah, making it about other people, making it about their story, not your own. So for that, we're very uh, grateful that you're willing to be on it to share with us. So let's start from the beginning. Uh, I don't mean the beginning of time or even the beginning of your time, but for the beginning of your writing career. When did you know you had a gift for writing? How did you get into writing? Um, how did you train as a writer? Talk to us about your, your history, how you became this prolific author. Well, that's very kind of you. Uh, this story starts... But like most stories, or many stories, we're, we're big believers in camp, pirche, camp, extracurricular, you know, because people go through the beautiful, functional yeshiva system. They don't always, they don't get to access maybe those extra talents that they, they know they have. I should mention that I have five sisters. I have no brothers, which it seemed like a cruel fate for most of my life. But at a certain point, I started to realize as I got older, especially, that I'm able to do what I do because I, I grew up with people. Is it okay to say that there's a lot of talking in my house? Just talking and talking and talking and talking. And at a certain point, Mark you can't express that, yourself. Good. I appreciate that. So, so there, there was just a lot of expression and, and everything was being talked out. There really wasn't, you know, there was no one to play ball with. 
So it became survival of the fittest. I realized later in life that the that the was giving me an opportunity, I guess, to develop or hone a certain part of my personality that most guys don't get to. Nobody in the dorm was talking about how they were feeling. It just wasn't, wasn't a thing. What's up for good? It wasn't good. Good night. Sleep well. Right? And I, you know, I come home and people were. So, so communication was important. My father, my grandfather, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. His name was Rukhaskal Bassa. He was a sure. great man, great leader, and a great writer. Sure. Uh, he wrote prolifically to the Bible time, Yiddish, Hebrew, English, German. He, he was multilingual and, and, and a brilliant man and a great writer. My father as well. They're, they're all very, very gifted communicators, especially in the written word. So I guess it was something I grew up with. And then going to camp in the summers and, and having opportunities through Pirche and stuff like that to write songs, to write theme songs. So it just became a thing that people people came to me. Could write a song for this? And I enjoyed it. I remember in the early years in Kyle, um, people would come to me on their anniversaries with the card. And they were like, dear, you know, <laughs> Rivki, Khani, whatever. You know? And then the rest, I was like, could you, could you just do this for me? I was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, create an app. I'll do your anniversary cards for you. But That's uh, a great yeah. business. Yeah, That's right? funny. Anniversary cards for the desperate last-minute husband. So <laughs> it was always something that I, I moved back to Montreal after a couple of years in Arts Israel, and I was in Kyle. And, uh, you know, the nature of the beast is that I had to also do things like buy gefilte fish for Shabbos and live. So that you need money for that. So I, somebody came to me and said, yeah, Ted had, a, had community pages. Chicago, I'm sure that they cover Boca now all the time. You know, you guys building there, what you're doing. But at that time, it was Detroit, Cleveland, whatever, you know. So they said, there's no Montreal page. Would you want to do a Montreal page? I said, yeah, sure. It was, uh, you think I could do Benastarim. It was money. It was every week. And I, I got a digital camera. And I would, like, go to Mlava Malkus and take a picture of that table and who spoke. And, you know, the, like you say, amazing. Everything was inspiring. Inspiring speech. <laughs> Everybody was inspired. Everybody so inspired. Oh, inspired. <laughs> week after week, you know. 900 words of inspired. <laughs> but I, I again, I, I realized that I enjoyed it, and I and, and something very interesting was happening, which was that the Orthodox Haredi community was creating its own media at the same time. You know, there was no Mishpacha magazine when I started. Mishpacha magazine, fifteen years old. I'm writing for about seventeen years, and and then Mishpacha came on the scene, and I saw it just impressed me. I saw the first issue as a reader, not as I wasn't on staff. So I just I liked it. I thought it was impressive. I thought it was sophisticated. I liked the graphics, and I, I saw what they were trying to do. And I knew that the demand was there for good readings. I know what we bought. We bought, I like to read. So we had time and Newsweek. We had anything to read digest. And there wasn't much that was appropriate at a certain point uh, ideologically. And certainly in terms of what you're looking at, it wasn't maybe the best fit for a firm home. But we didn't have anything else to read. And we were desperate for quality reading material. Right. So I, I was in Israel. Like a year, a year and a half after Mishpacha was founded, I went to visit somebody. And I walked into the office, off the street. I said, can I, can I work for you? I can write. You know, more or less, they said, send the samples. It's, uh, you know, I went, I started there. And uh, I was never planning to write biographies. It wasn't something I thought I could do. And the Shlomo Freifeld GRZ came in. The then editor, Mrs. Safran, Fagel Safran, asked me, would you want to write an article on Shlomo? It's my favorite. It's my favorite one, sorry. It's, 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 it's a very special book. It's, he was a very special man. Again, when I talk about these books, it was, a, I got lucky because I got the assignments of the people who, 
you, when you're going to tell a story of, of Rabbi Yashav or of Steinman or whoever, you don't have that joy of uncovering something because people more or less know the basic storyline and they've heard a lot of the stories. When you're going to Shlomo Parfum or Rabbi Trank and everybody in between, there's a big thrill. The writer gets to use a gimmick, so to speak, and it makes me look good, but I really don't deserve that. It's really the fact that these people were just so... I, I, I felt a big connection to Shlomo Parfum. I had a good friend with his grandson. I'd been in a deal with him in Israel and anything I heard about him just got me drunk. Every story meant something to me. I, you know, I had friends who had grown up in this community. So for the, with the art side, I threw myself into an article. I think I got paid for the article probably $250 or $300. I worked probably 30 hours on it. It was just completely, I got lost in it. And my wife was and continues to be the, the greatest asset in my life allowed me that time. You know, we were in Kylie, we had little children and she, she saw that I was in love with this and she just let me go. And I, I, if there was another another Talmud that I can get to, I would call him. I would turn over every stone because it was just such a, it moves me now, remembering those days and the man. And then the book came out and, and it sold. It's, it's maybe in its ninth printing or tenth printing. I, w- I had never written a book before. And the marketing wasn't, wasn't a super marketing job. And I don't think anybody heard of me. And not that many people heard of him. At the time of Shlomo's passing, there were maybe 30 guys in Chayasha. It wasn't, uh, he didn't leave over Lakewood. He didn't leave over Wyoming. He left over Little Yeshiva on Central Avenue that was, you know, on the wrong side of town and eventually moved. And the book went. The Rebbe wanted it to go, and it, it, it was time. And I, I learned a lot of things from that. I learned that somebody doesn't have to die. The biography doesn't have to come out a year later. If the story is a good story, and you tell it in the right way, that people will connect to it because people are essentially interested in growing. And as long as you don't bore them or lie to them or patronize them or cheapen the story, then everybody's a book, you know, and... and I, I, you know, I wanted to do that. I knew that that's what I wanted to do essentially with the rest of my life. And the Galtel was with an excellent one who took a chance on me. Michal in Milwaukee. I had gone for Mishpacha. My wife and I went for Shabbos on a Mishpacha assignment. I don't know if you know him. You need to have him on your show. Yeah, sure. He, okay. He's remarkable. He's, he's remarkable. His Taira, his music, his outreach, what he gives to the community, what he built in Milwaukee and his devotion to his people. This is something you could probably appreciate. It's off topic. Do you mind that I'm just rambling? No, we're enjoying. No, so far, uh, when we okay. stop, when we stop enjoying, we'll let you know. <laughs> he he once told me the Milwaukee community is not huge; it's about 150 families. And he once told me that he feels, he knows that he can have a much bigger community, but he feels that when you make somebody from, when you bring someone to religion, it's not just your job to get them uh, to put on a black hat or whatever your goal is. You need to make sure that their chinuch is okay, that their shalom bias is okay, that they're raising their kids in a healthy, productive way, that they're marrying off their kids. In, in a way that works for them. He says, I got to give them everything. This is a lifetime commitment. Every single family in here is a lifetime commitment. Once I made them from their mind forever. And that's how he runs his community. That's just off topic about him it's in Milwaukee. It's, wow. it's remarkable. It's freezing, freezing. Worse than Montreal. <laughs> freezing place, but uh, but beautiful. And his son was Rabbi Gelsen. He had died young sure. at 46. And they had wanted a book. I, mean, I was open. I was wide open. And I had done Rabbi Freifeld. And, and in a way, Rabbi Geltzel was a very similar story to Rabbi Freifeld, just in a Hasidic version. That means a lot of the same, completely open to doing things his way, completely innovative and fresh and alive. And the main uh, common denominator, in love with being Jewish, in love with Yiddishkeit. You know, not exactly the same Yiddishkeit coming exactly from the same sort of school, but in love with Yiddishkeit. So I did that. And then, you know, from then... We evolved, Baruch Hashem. 
I, there's so many questions to ask you as a follow-up, and, and I want to you know the other rabbis have questions too. But um, on the genre of biographies, I want to tell you, Tal Ben Shachar, who was a professor at Harvard and taught the most popular class in Harvard's history on happiness, he's an Israeli, and he's done all the research on happiness. He spoke in our shul several years ago, and uh, in, in a question and answer, he was asked what book, to, what books to read um, to, to be the most inspired. And one would have thought he'd talk about self-help genre. He writes on happiness. He's an author in that genre. He's a career from it. And he said, that's not what I'll tell you. You've got to read biographies. If you want to be inspired, you want to be happy in life, read biographies. And he talked about the power of a biography much more than a self-help book is reading someone else's biography. So you're, the biographies you wrote are, are nothing short of Svarim, Musar Svarim, and, and, and really Hashkafa Svarim, and Machshava Svarim, and they've been very transformative. The Rabbi Gelzaler book impacted me very deeply. I think it's in, cr- tremendously underrated. I'll, I'll uh, shout out to our friend Rabbi Ari Mirzoff, who is in, who's in love with that book. He's a, he's a middle school Rebbe, and it inspires his own teaching and love of Talmidim every single day. Rabbi Gelzala, your book, my copy is all marked up with the stories that, that have inspired cool. me. So the biographies, uh, I have so many questions. Where do you begin when you're researching somebody? Who do you choose to speak to? But I want to go right to the question of what do you choose to include? You know, there's a word that we all learned several years ago, hey, geography. I don't know if it's a made-up word, a new word, or it's an old word no one knew. But a hey, geography is not a biography. In a laboratory in Yeshiva University. <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> so bi- biography is, you know, you're telling the good, the bad, the ugly. You're telling every part of a person's life. A hey, geography is, here's a perfect person who was born perfect, never struggled, and I present the perfect package to you. And um, I'm not talking about your biographies in particular, but the biography genre in the from world in general are really hate geographies, not biographies. They don't tell us about the challenges. They don't tell us about the failures. They don't tell us about the difficult times. In fact, there, there's a powerful part in the Mayor's Lotowitz book where it does talk about his divorce and, and the loyalty of his Rebbe, which I was very moved by because one wouldn't think. I wonder if he were a prominent God of Yisrael and not known as the founder of a publishing company, if it would have been readily included as quickly. But I'm wondering if you can comment on that. When, when accumulating information and when studying the life of these great people, nobody is perfect. Nobody's perfect. So how do you bring that imperfection to a book without in any way wanting to hurt the legacy or the family of, of the one you're writing about? It's such a good question. I'm so happy to talk about it. I'm sure you're all familiar with the letter of Rav Hutner, which is the starting point of every conversation that we, we raise our children with the stories of the Chavetz Chaim. They didn't talk Lashonara. We don't, we're doing them a disservice by not telling them that all the years that he developed that me, then all the challenges and all the pitfalls, Shavai Paltzadik to come, that because he fell seven times, we have to talk about the falls. Now, uh, you don't want to only write a book about the falls and the failures, of course, for two reasons. One is the people who never made it past that hump aren't getting the books. That's just not the nature of it. That's not what we do. And, and the second reason is because the, the happy ending is what justifies everything that came before it. And then you look back in retrospect and all those, those hurdles and obstacles and challenges are so much more glorious. And you're doing your children and your readers a, a disservice Jewishly if they can understand that a failure is not only um, one of the ways to success, but the only way to success and, and to glorify that. I, Irvin Ayazana, which is the book I could talk about, but if you tell me any book I wrote, I can tell you about how... Um, what I would be honest with and what I wouldn't be dishonest with, I just wouldn't bring it up because it's irrelevant. I don't think that there's a mice in the world, other than it's famously that in the Boca Raton synagogue, there's no politics between the rabbis. But every other mice institution, <laughs> shul on earth, has some degree of, because human beings, when you're involved in that kind of high level, high profile, 
position of being a Rav, being a Rosh Hashiva. There's always little stuff that go on between Rosh Hashiva. If you were in Yeshiva and you're astute enough and you had eyes and you knew how to eavesdrop, I'm sure you picked up a thing or two, you know, from the Mizrach wall. But that's not important to the story because not only is it not who they are, it's not even a reflection of who they are. It's as important to me as the fact that he didn't park his car well or, or something insignificant like that. It, it doesn't speak. If the person was a person who worked on their midas their whole life and evolved into a person who was a paragon of midas, in not just in the way that they preached, but in the way they behaved, so that it's not important to me. If it is important to me, I'll give you an example. We'll, we'll talk to Shlomo Freifeld. Shlomo said, I don't know if I wrote it in the book or if I only heard it after, but I've said it publicly many times, that his rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner, was surrounded by tremendous malikishan, by very bright people. I don't know if you know Talmud of Chaim Belinda, unbelievably, not all, not all uh, intellectual heavyweights, but all heavyweights. Some of them are musical heavyweights. Some of them are very poetic people. Rabbi Shlomo said he considered himself an average, average in mind, average in kishon. He said, when I realized... We had a story there that he went to the Chazanish, and the Chazanish told him about different Gedele Yisrael, who were also considered of average intellect. And he said, when I realized that my Rebbe was dealing with the caliber of, of Talmud, but who's going to deal with the average Bali Kirshen, or with the weaker Bali Kirshen? That's going to be my, I'm going to take Rav and the glory of Rav and the splendor of what Rav built in America, but I'm going to be able to bring that down to guys who maybe aren't natural for Tzachayim Bolin, and, and we wrote that in the book, and there were those. Uh, even though it's close to me, you're saying that Rebbe wasn't a, a Valkyrian. I'm saying I'm not saying anything that Rebbe didn't even say about himself. I don't have to be kinder to his legacy than he was to his legacy, right? That's not my job. Uh, but that's a job I could do for a lot of money. We could do revisionism. That's a total different industry, and I'm happy to talk. Anybody could feel me the details. <laughs> we can get that done, but I, you know, I haven't gotten there yet. And Shlomo Freifeld, we have a story there. It, it's I'm, I'm going to cry, and you're going to cry also. It's a Pesach story. Was, it was the year that his Rabbitson, his first Rabbitson, was a remarkable woman. She passed away young, was sick. And it was Arab Pesach in the house, and he, and and and, and uh, the vibe wasn't there, you know, Arab Pesach. So, Khanina Hertzberg, the Manal and Saz Shore, Oliver Shalom, he passed away a couple of years ago. Very, very much a Talmud who reflected his Rabbi. Came into the house, and he saw Rabbi was sitting there, and uh, he said, Rabbi, can I make you a coffee? He said, Yeah, he brings him a coffee, and he sees that Rabbi payas are wet. That means he'd been to the mikvah already. So he's sitting with Shlema and he says, can I do anything for you, Rabbi? She says, yeah, I wouldn't mind if you took me to the mikvah. Can you drive me to the mikvah? So it was odd, because Shlema had gone to the mikvah. But he said, sure. Talmud doesn't ask questions. Took Shlema, drove him to the mikvah, and drove him home. Came home. Shlema is back to himself. He's exuding vitality and, and simcha and energy. And he, is, and he says, can you make me a coffee? He says, sure. He makes him a second coffee of the day. And Shlema is drinking a coffee, and he's back to himself. She says, Rebbe, can I ask what, what just happened? I came in, you were drinking a coffee. You had gone to the mikvah. We just repeated the whole thing. She says, yeah, I'll tell you the truth. I was sitting here and I was depressed. What, the rabbits and so sick. We're parents. We make the Pesach Seder all the years. The kids come to us. The Anikla come to us. This year, we're going to one of our children. The house doesn't feel like our Pesach. The smells, the sounds, the the the, the intensity, the, the excitement in the air. The Jewish house in our Pesach is just not here. And I was down. And I went to the mikvah and I came I'm still down. And he made me a coffee, and I went back to the mikvah. And this time in the mikvah, this is what I was thinking. Who am I? Am I Shlomo from Ishbitz? Am I Shlomo from Pshischa? Am I Shlomo from Breslov? I'm Shlomo from East New York, and I just got to do the best that I could do. And with that thought, I'm ready to come home, because I'm doing the best that I can do. That's the story. Wow. I just got to do the best that I could do. Now, is that a Gadol story? It's not a classic Gadol story, but it's the greatest Gadol story that you're going to hear this week. 
because he, he was making peace with his reality that it's okay to be dejected in that situation. And I'm happy with where the Barnashah will put me because that's where he wants me to be. And I'm going to want to pay off with that stuff. So that's where he, it's a life-changing story because it's, it's very counter to what a lot of the books are going to tell you. That Shalom put on music and he jumped up and down and he said, okay, we're great. And I'm of Nachum Vassal. No, you're not of Nachum Vassal. And you're not the Ishbitzer. from New York. I guess right. it cuts both it cuts both ways. There's the element of do you bring up the ugly, and I understand the argument against it. There's also the other phenomenon, which is exaggerating things or making it like it's very simple. There's a book on the Kloisenberger Rebbe. I read the book cover to cover because I'm a big fan of the Kloisenberger Rebbe, and I then spoke to a very very prominent person, very very prominent person who was extraordinarily close to the Kloisenberger Rebbe, and I was bothered, and I said the book says the Kloisenberger Rebbe survived the Holocaust, and he never once ate non-kosher in the camps. He never once ate non-kosher. He never once had to be Michal Shabbos. The way he was able to conduct himself, and, and, and the individual told me, it's just not true. It's Sheker V'chazov. It's not true. It is impossible. You, one could not survive. It is simply an impossibility. And he went even further and he said, it's a disservice to the Rebbe to say something that's untrue about him as if he was anything less than that great because he had to eat what he needed to eat to survive. And Yermotzi Laz and all the survivors who did what they had to do in those camps. So again, there, there's, there's the phenomenon of not needing to bring up failures, not needing to focus or emphasize on shortcomings. But I think there's also the phenomenon of exaggerations and over-exaggerations or distortions because some people feel that one needs to project an image of a, of a perfect gadol, anything less than perfection, and they're not really a gadol. Again, I can't speak for what other people do, or, or other books. I can only speak for what I've worked on. We've tried to avoid it. I don't, I don't love the term ugly, because I don't think any of it is ugly. I think maybe the term is human. Right. And we try not to cover that up. I just I want to share a quote from the Freifel book, which is very similar to the story you just told, which is that he was talking about how in yeshiva he was surrounded by a group of brilliant near geniuses. And then you write, and then one day I sat down in a room by myself, my head in my hands, and had a heart-to-heart talk with myself. Quote, you are not brilliant, I told myself. You are not a genius nor a near genius. You have to be who you are. You have to start your learning from the fundamentals and work your way up. There are no shortcuts for you. Believe me, the experience was painful. I felt as if a dagger had been plunged into me, but it was my liberation, my personal exodus. That day was the turning point in my life. So I love that. I mean, I've, I've used that. I've, I've personally reflected upon it many times, but I think that's the humanity that you were just talking about. When, when you humanize, when, when we're able to connect to these gadolim and say, that's something that I can take upon myself, that he had grit, that he worked hard, that it didn't come naturally to him, that's something that I can emulate. And I think that's what makes so many of your biographies um, so, uh, so endearing to so many of us. I, mean, I, I lucked at some people. I got good subjects. It's, it's so, so where do you start? You have a, a, a plethora of information. You have so many people to interview. I'm sure your mind is like running around in circles of angles of what to include and what not to include. Walk our listeners through the process of when you decide, okay, I'm writing a book about, you know, a, a Trank or a Freifeld, and I'm interviewing a ton of people. You obviously have to develop like a Mahalich and how you want to approach and how do you want to develop? How does that play out in your mind? How long does it take? I mean, it must take hundreds of hours. Right. It, it, take, it takes, uh, so again, you, you, you do this for long enough, at a certain point you get a feel for, the, there are people who will, will tell you their perception of a Rebbe or of a parent, and it's not always grounded in, in truth. I don't mean factual truth. It's just, you sense that they want things to be a certain way, maybe, or they remember things differently than everybody else, so you can't use their stuff. You, you have to, the first thing is weeding out what's really true, 
and what belongs in the book and what their perception of something or the way they would want it to be. And these are things you see every day in front of your eyes. You don't, you know, you don't even need examples, right? People come home and two people will tell you the exact same thing and one side one way, one side the other way. So it's very important to have, you can't do a book of biography without that one Talmud. It's usually not a family member. It's, it's very complicated working with children. The legacy of a Gadol, um, there's children and there's Talmudim, and there are two different, they're not two different camps, but there's two different perceptions. And that's that's normal. That's the way it should be. And you need somebody in each camp. Is this, does this make sense? So when I'm working on a book, I'll find somebody that I feel is just trustworthy and just gets it. And, and usually everybody knows who that person is. In, who was in the orbit of that Gadol or that subject. And I'll work with them and I'll say, somebody told me something that it doesn't make sense. Or why do you think that would be? You know, I'll just give an example from the Robert Trank book. Robert Trank wasn't what you'd call a Gadol. That means at the time of his passing, maybe there were 15 guys in his yeshiva. He had left Adelphia already. He started the yeshiva in Lakewood. It was not a runaway success. Um, wasn't even an average success by a lot of people's barometer. But then you read the book and you realize what he was doing there. So I, I just had a story. It was a random story. There was Rabbi uh, Josh Silverman's from the uh, from Pirachai. He was a big leader of youth groups, and I had a story there. How Rabbi Ruchim Olson, the Lakewood Rosh Hashiva, was speaking at a Pirachai Simashnayis about Josh Silverman's. So Rabbi Trank went out to call Mrs. Silverman's to tell her that someone had mentioned her husband, the Almana, which was a classic Rabbi Trank. He lived. Uh, he was just this fountain of hatava of thinking of ways to be good. So his son Rabbi said, "It can't be true." My father would never leave while someone was speaking. He would never get a papadeus if someone was speaking at, at the microphone. His covered abrius was to say, okay, now I don't, I wasn't there, but it's pushed to me that he's right because it's his father, because I know enough about ever trying to know that it's unthinkable. It's a wall. If somebody's in the middle of speaking, he's not getting up. He's not walking out of the room. He has too much respect. Certainly not Rabbi Ruchamosha, but he wouldn't do it to anybody. He wouldn't do it if it was a child speaking. So obviously this story, now I don't have any evidence that he did it after. It just, it just makes sense. So I'm using that as an example because it comes to mind. But there's a puzzle, and things start to fit into place, and you understand this works. Now, the last few books I did is so much easier because I'm writing books about people now that there's emails from and text messages from and so much video footage of Schleimer. I was really a little bit blind. I was, you know, there was some audio, very, very little video, uh, video footage out there. Not much. The Blazer Geltzer also. Uh, you know, Mayor Lotowitz, I had emails myself from him. I knew him, and, and it was so he, – he documented everything. He was a very, very efficient person. He got a lot done in a day. He dealt with a lot of different people, and he expressed himself beautifully. So people just send me emails, hundreds of emails. So he was telling me his own story in a way. It's much easier now than it used to be because the 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 truth and not truth is very, very – it's very easy to figure things out if you put together the pieces. Doesn't that make it harder? Now you're, now you're over-inundated with information, right? I mean, if you it have every text, every email – It's much harder to lie now, yeah. <laughs> no, but as the biographer, isn't it harder for you to sift through the information and to – to work your way to a narrative. I've been lucky that the people I wrote about, I fell in love with and I, I wanted to do it. At a certain point in every book, I realized like, even if nobody pays me, I'm not stopping because I'm, I, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. You know, my, my wife and my kids sometimes make fun of me. They're like, okay, who's Tati this Shabbos? Uh, who, who are we? <laughs> we the Tasha Rebbe this Shabbos? <laughs> like, who, 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 just tell right. me what zone you're in now. So we know, you know, to be ready. Rabbi Brody. Yeah, just a quick question. You know, most of the books that are written on Gedolim are written, obviously, after they pass away. I'm wondering, there's so many great rabbis today. There's so many of the great, you know, call them Rosh Hashivas, you call them Rabbanim, you call them, you know, just just the incredible Rabbanim that are giving shirim in, in, in yeshivas. And, you know, for for all the, 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 the shirim I've sat in on in any of the number of the yeshivas I've ever been to, you never really get a taste of who the person is. You get their Torah, 
you get there, you know, the, the, whatever it is that they want to tell you on, on, on whatever subject they happen to be teaching that day. Let's Gamar, whatever it might be, right? A great shear, but they very rarely let on who they are in terms of family history, where they're from. It's almost like you get, and then there's a fear to ask. Like, I, I, where, where, how did you grow up? What did you do? What were your thing? What, would, what were you afraid of? What, where, where did you fail? Where did you, where, why is there this distance? And you only find out about these stories after they pass away. You know, is, right. So uh, a couple of things. One is actually mentioned. It's not my book, but I saw I was called put out this week a book on Eric Grossman from McDowell Amick, who I found right. alive and well, which is interesting right. to me. I don't I don't remember too many uh, uh, other books on living figures, which is interesting. Maybe it's a response to what you're talking about now. But I know in Mishpacha, Yantif is coming in twice a year. We do a Yantif issue, which Baruch Hashem sells are always wonderful. The magazine is, is very well received always. But Yantif is, as many as we print, I know we're going to sell out. And it's expected that we, you know, we give our best stuff. And we've been writing on Living Dial now for the last 10 years because readers wrote to us. Why are you telling us when it's too late? Why do I have to hear about David Feinstein when I can't even go to him for a bracha? So the sucker said, right. remove in Feinstein. You know, I've been doing it for years now. Twice a year, we find someone who's alive. Um, we, we shift between America and Israel so that, you know, not everybody can make it to Israel. Even before COVID, not everybody had the financial means or the ability to get away. And everybody should be able to go or take their children or go sit with their wife in the home of a Godel. So, I, you know, we've been Reboom Kamenetsky, Reboom Feinstein, Sukkis, or Yaakov Mereshach, their last Pesach, or Shul Kamenetsky, last Sukkis, and, and so on. And, and whoever will be doing next week, you mentioned some of the Pesach magazine, the, uh, stay tuned. But the poor reason was because of this. Now, they weren't comfortable with it. Many of the G'dayim in question were, they weren't comfortable telling you these kinds of things. So what we did was we developed a, a kind of workaround where we don't interview them. It's a profile. And they go along with it because they understand that there is a need for people to connect with them. Right? So um, if I'm if I'm going to interview you, you're not going to tell me. Nobody's going to be comfortable saying, oh, I finished, you know, here was my hardest accomplishment. It's not how good I will do it because they really, they, they really are modest. That's not just, that's not just the, uh, hey, geography, hey, geography. I never know. <laughs> it's not, that's we'll true, that they, they don't see themselves as significant. But if we do the profile, so we go in, we come to the shoes, we come to the shear, we hang around the house, we spend a lot of time talking to their intimate family or, or children, and we're able to develop a piece that the readers feel like, okay, this is somebody who's alive, and I get it now. I understand why this God all speaks to me. So I guess I got to subscribe to Mishpacha. That's, a, that's the bottom line. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't Thank you. That. Wouldn't be a bad idea. I, I can I tell you this. If you start, you'll never stop. I gotcha. It is, it is so important to publish those articles because people are also exposed to not only their rebellion or the rebellion of their particular... Uh, you know, area within within from Kite, but they're exposed to a much broader, and they gain a great appreciation for cholesterol. I got an uh, I can't say the word. I got a wonderful and inspiring email this week. This week, um, somebody listened to an interview I did with Rav Shechter with Mori Varabi Rav Shechter earlier this year, and it was Rav Shechter's walk through Gedol and his his relationships and conversations in America and Eretz Yisrael from his youth until today. Almost every one of them was basically his telling us which sugya he spoke to them about fifty years ago. It was it was as so somebody wrote me an email who said. I learned in Lakewood. I come from Lakewood world. I, I never knew Rav Schechter, but I listened to that interview and you could hear how special he is, how genuine he is, how humble he is. They just wrote me a beautiful thing. They, they were so grateful to have been exposed. Forget the Gedolim Rav Schechter was talking about him. So one of the things I think that's a great contribution of Mishbacha is, is that they're not afraid to expose the readership to a, a broad and diverse cross-section of great people, which is a great service. It is a great service. Um, I want to ask you... a diverse leadership. Right. Right. That is true. That is true. I know that because 
when I've been privileged to be to be uh, involved, I had the opportunity and privilege. When some of the people I hear from, I saw you, or I read that article, I say, you get Mishpacha magazine? Are you kidding me? I didn't know that. Anyway, so it is it is shocking sometimes. Um, trying to decide which which direction to go next. We've already used a lot of your time. Um, the thing that you think you should ask the thing that you don't that you think you should ask. <laughs> well, I was gonna I was I, I was go gonna ask it. you. I have I have six daughters and a little son, so I also struggle. Part of the reason I speak so much outside my home is I'm not allowed to speak that much inside my home. I have to compete. So I re- I related to that when you described that. Um, how do your five sisters feel? that their picture could never appear in, in the magazine that you're a contributing editor of. How do you explain it? How do you communicate that to somebody? I, I would say the answer is... I could go with the other question. <laughs> no, 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 this, I, I love this question. And I, and I can't speak for my sisters, and I certainly can't speak for Mishpacha magazine. I'm not the, the decision maker, neither rabbinic nor executive editor. But I've been around for a long time and been involved in these conversations, and I can only tell you what I feel. Um, we came into an industry, we came into a world. I know you had Ali Pillay on a couple of months ago, and, and he's obviously somebody who, who this is much more central to what he does. He's the boss, ultimately, of the magazine. He owns the magazine. There is There are things in the firm world that are glorious. There are things that are splendid. And then there are things that maybe if we could press a button and change those things, we would love to change them. Maybe it's a certain culture. Maybe it's a certain style of living. Maybe it's certain habits that have crept in. But the starting point is of all conversation is we love this community. This is where we are, and there's nowhere else we'd want to be. And there's no one who comes close. There's no community. There's no demographic who comes close to what we have going on. So before I address the the uh, the woman, the woman's faces issue, if you don't mind, I, I want to address the conversation. You know, let's say your wife makes up for the kids, right? You know, if if that happens, and a lot of them, uh, is that is that. Are we at the premise of this conversation is okay? The wife makes supper. It should happen in some homes. Okay. So what mommy says, she's making chicken and potatoes for supper. So there's always going to be one kid who says, oh, I hate chicken. Chicken is disgusting. I don't want to eat chicken. I'm not eating chicken. It's terrible. It's disgusting. It's alive. It's gross. Fine. So the wife will say, uh, okay, so uh, eat cereal milk. Uh, you know, everybody else likes it. I like it. Daddy likes it. The kids like it. It's healthy. It's important. I already bought the chicken. You can take pizza and put it in the microwave. You can, you can figure it out, right? Everybody's sitting at supper eating chicken and potatoes. And the kid who hates chicken says, why do you use that sauce on the chicken? That's gross. That's the worst colored sauce. I don't like the way it looks on the chicken. So even a patient mother will say, listen, buddy, or listen, Sadik, you're not in the conversation because you don't like chicken in the first place. You don't eat chicken. You told me chicken's disgusting. So you're not, you don't get to weigh in on the sauce. The ones who are eating the chicken should be the ones having the conversation if they like the sauce not, right? We allowed the social media discourse. I'm not going to be hostage to somebody who doesn't want to be sitting at my table. If you don't like chicken and you don't like potatoes and that's not your choice, your first choice, your second choice, you're at the table eating and enjoying supper, then your views on whether or not the sauce is the right color or not aren't that relevant to me. I'll politely listen to you. Just like the mother will maybe until she runs out of patience, listen to her child talk about it. But you have to earn the right to be in a conversation. Are you with me so far? You know, I'm so following we the analogy. Saw, yeah. You saw you don't love the analogy. I'm losing you. I'll, t- I'll tell you why I, I don't necessarily. I feel like love it. I don't social like... media discourse be taken over by a bunch of people who are looking for ways to to either they're not happy with the firm world for whatever reason. It doesn't work for them for a lot of reasons. Maybe they themselves are really not that firm. 
I, I'm not accusing people. I'm not thinking of any people names, but I spent a lot of years on Twitter and a lot of years on Facebook responding to every comment, you know, when I was younger and had more time because I believe that was my responsibility. You got to put yourself out there. It comes up to territory. And I answered everybody. And I was humbled a lot of times from arguments that convinced me that I was wrong. I wasn't always right. And I'm still not always right. But I realized that the conversation, the discourse, you know, somebody once said that the, the internet is to rage what a credit card is to debt. It means you don't go in debt because you have a credit card. You go in debt because you're not careful with your spending habits. But the credit card makes it much easier than when you go to the ATM and take out money and you see it in front of you and you're always able to keep a husband. The internet makes it very easy to get angry. Where you, you're in a show with a very diverse congregants. You have con conversations with people. I'm sure you have people who think that a mask is the biggest myth on the tire. And I'm sure you have people who think that a mask is ridiculous. And I'm sure you get along with all of them because you're talking to them and you're making eye contact and you know them, their wives, their mothers, their kids, where they're coming from. They know you. They know you're their rabbi and a tamachacham. So you're able to have a normal conversation. The internet allows for none of those things. So there's no, there's no background to the conversation. It's the same usual suspects using. So before I, I discuss pictures of women, I want to discuss what pictures of women have become. It's just another tool. It's just another bat, another golf club in your arsenal of ways that you're going to knock the Haredi community that you don't like either. And you hate Mishpacha magazine even more. You know why? Because we're successful. Baruch Hashem. We created a viable commercial model that works. We're selling a lot of magazines. We're employing over 100 people. Right. Um, a hundred people, the vast majority of whom, I shouldn't say the vast majority, but many of whom have never gone to journalism school. I'm in touch with secular journalists all the time, and they're shocked, A, by what by the Haredi economy, that we're able to sustain the print media, and people are feeding their families. I don't think anybody's wealthy on my end of the table, but Baruch Hashem, we're managing nicely, we're doing okay. They're shocked that people read, at the amount of readers we have. They don't have anything close to this, even those who are from bigger publications, with the bigger circulation, but the actual readers, People that I could sit with you and you're all, granted you're all people who come from the world of this but you're all more or less familiar with the biographies that people are reading and you're out there. You're very busy people. Your husbands, your fathers, you're a bottom. But we read. We're a community who reads. So I, I know that mishpacha engenders bitterness because we took a model, we ran with it, we succeeded, Baruch Hashem. And if you don't like the film community, you for sure hate us. There was, there was a mistake actually in that. Now, I'll tell you, there was a mistake in your assumption because there are people who love Mishpacha, who subscribe, who read it religiously, but who are frustrated by the one policy. Oh, I know that. It's not... I, I'm talking about Twitter. Well, okay, no, no. So on Twitter, on Twitter, I agree with Twitter you. Not only will I, I agree with we'll you, We'll get to but, your life in a minute. I was just taking a step right. back to address the cause. That, that the cause celebra of the angry Twitter mob, I don't have that much, uh, I don't feel that much of a, of a mandate to respond to the same five people because I see the other things you've tweeted about or written about on social media, and I see where you stand on 10 other things. You, you don't really, if, if I told you, let's just say, and I wasn't planning to say this, but the Gemara says, Gemara, Ksubas, also to be, uh, also from of a woman. You're not allowed to derive pleasure from the little finger of a woman if you look at it. If I'm gonna tell them that the Gemara says that, they don't wanna say, oh, the Gemara is terrible, the Gemara is wrong, because he can't say that. They'll say, Besser made it up, he misinterpreted it, the Gemara lends itself, oh, and they'll search, will be up all night until they find uh, a source somewhere that says whatever they wanted to say you're not you're not at my table you're not eating my chicken so why do i have to spend my 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 time is valuable so, so can i agree with you I, I want to agree with you first and foremost that i'm equally frustrated and and in my own way or we in our own ways have also been victims of, of a similar phenomenon but i agree with you that if you want to make change do it from inside do it behind the scenes do it in respectful conversations and and don't go and change has outside. been made and change has right. been made and change continues to be made. Let's go off from a woman a minute. Um, you know, you're dealing, you wrote this in your article. There's a lot of people in the film community in therapy. 
I don't think that there's a home, that there's a parent who doesn't have a child either with ADHD, OCD, mild bipolar, some kind of anger management issue or some kind of scholastic issue. Nobody. We get credit, not us alone, Haredi media over the last 15 years hasn't stopped. That means giving a, a podium to therapists, making it normal. Now, we got a lot of hate mail at the beginning. Why should my kid? Every marriage isn't bad, but every marriage has moments of tension. And every marriage, people fight with their spouses. Guess what? And they hopefully are healthy enough and mature enough to work out, but these things happen. So till we came along, uh, every Tati and Mami were just uh, chatting amiably all along, and everybody was happy on the column I drifted. Guess what? It's not how it is. So through our fiction and through giving a platform to mental health professionals and through talking about real things. I don't know if you saw last week's family first cover on alcohol addiction and Bachram and the process, which is a real issue and a real problem. And I saw from including in my personal network, people who I wouldn't believe who wrote, thank you for picking up this problem I'm dealing with with my kids or with myself, uh, you know, uh, alcohol abuse in the Trump community. So we, we, we've changed a lot and we continue to change a lot, but we pick Why? Well, hold on, I have to stop you. Why, why was that in Family First, not in the main magazine? It's a, it's a great question. I, and I, I, the, the writer, Rachel Avon, is, is, a, is an outstanding writer. I, I assume is because it was written through the perspective, it was the cover story in Family First. Uh, I assume for two reasons. One is we're back on covers. Baruch Hashem, we have a lot of stuff going on. You know, real estate of the magazine is valuable. There's a lot to talk about and only so many pages a week. And I assume that she was telling it through the perspective of the wife and her role in getting her husband the help he needed, being strong enough to issue an ultimatum, to draw a line in the sand, and to eventually, you know, that story had a happy ending, but I, I don't think that she sugarcoats anything in the two reality. Of the, uh, two, of the, two of the therapists that are quoted in that story are from Boca Raton and members of uh, our shul, by the way. So we, oh, we feel nice. connected to that story. Um, but so I, I wanted to just go back, I wanted to go back to something you said. Yeah. I, want, I want to just go back to something you said for a moment because I, I share in your frustration that people who generally are trolls to the community, outsiders to the community, adversaries of the community, have to a degree forfeited their right to be critics of this one area because they don't have credibility of appreciating or acknowledging the good part of a community. And I think there's truth to that. And I certainly think there's no value to going to other outside communities to talk about the community they're not part of and criticize it. No change is going to happen from that. But I, but the, the question that people would push back at you is, in terms of the chicken and pizza analogy, is when it comes to a civil right issue, you don't necessarily have to be a member of the victim community to want to stand up for a social justice or a civil right. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that women's pictures in a magazine is civil right. I've been on record. I've said it. I've said it to you. I said it to Ellie. I think it's a mistake. I don't understand it. I don't think it's historically part of the, the Masora of our, of our from community. So I disagree with it. I'm clear about that. But there are people who think that it's a social justice or civil right issue, and therefore you don't have to necessarily be a member of a community not, to stand up and protest right. They think community. that we're destructive because we're objectifying women and giving into a... So, you know, Ellie mentioned there, and I hate to go back to the same example he gave, but it's a good one. He mentioned Allison, Allison Joseph, Jew in the city, right? She came to me. I, I brought her to Ellie, and she came um, in, a, in, a, in it's not just in a respectful way, like I need respect, like she doffed her head and said, hi, Rabbi Besser, and she stood up when I walked into the room. That's not what I mean. That means she clearly got what we're doing, and she expressed to me another viewpoint which I didn't see, which is, like you just said, you know, objectifying women, where should they see a senior woman, art school biographies, published pictures of women. Chaim Kanievsky, in the book on his wife, they asked him, he said, not on the cover, but inside the book, you could and you should. So they do it. They put pictures of rabbits in it. And every one of my books, Freifeld, all the way down, there's a picture of a woman. They, they, I understand why someone should do it. And I'm going to tell you something else. I even wouldn't have a problem with it if Mephacha changed power. I want to go back to my sisters. 
The answer to my sisters is, they got other things on their mind. It's not their biggest issue. It's not what keeps them awake at night. They have other worries. If Mishpacha would start putting in women, there'll be a lot of readers happy and, and a bunch of new readers who are unhappy, who feel, um, again, I'm not a Pisic. We went to many, many Pisces. By and large, I think that probably it's mother to put pictures of women. Like I said, art school does it. Ellie said it's a business decision because it will alienate the Hasidic the Sharitas. He knows the business. He knows the numbers. He knows the demographics a lot better. But I, I think uh, I'll play with Allison now. Uh, here's, we, we pretty much do anything. Once we have a lochik, we're not scared of other publications. We're, we're the biggest, Baruch Hashem, and we're comfortable in our skin doing our thing. So on our website, we have pictures of women. So, so that was a step. But that's because of the efforts of people like her, who were respectful, who sat down with us, who raised awareness. They said, how does it look? Uh, another example, um, we, we, you know, we, had a, we had an interview scheduled with Nikki Haley recently, in the last couple of weeks. Um, it, was, uh, it was a deal breaker. You know, she wanted a picture on the cover. So we went back and forth and we said, you know, when it was Hillary, when we thought she was going to win the week before the election in 2016, we were ready to do it. Covered him all, it wasn't even a question. If that's the sitting president of the United States of America, then of course you don't alien. Is Nikki Haley, who's a potential candidate and maybe not even a candidate, especially if Trump decides he does, yeah, Tucker, Waterman, then have a good day? Is, you know, so maybe not. Is that somebody? So this was a thing we went back and forth and, and the conversation dropped and the interview dropped. It wasn't that exciting to anybody. It's a conversation we're always having about it. Um, but at the same time, would you want to be responsible to make the decision to say, yeah, put in a picture of Evans and Kanievsky, and then Lahavam Nikki Haley, and then in five years from now, uh, the right store in Barapar comes in and says, I need you to advertise a woman's fur coat, but it needs to show the woman's face, because otherwise you won't see the slope of her shoulders, so you won't appreciate it. And then five years after that, we look like uh, like Vogue. Really? Is that where we want to go? And who's going to take responsibility for that? Uh, well, I'm not sure the slope. I don't think the slope has to be that slippery. You're in control of it. You're disciplined. You're professional. I, I don't think that slope is that you know, slippery yeah, or that you would ever get look there. Look at the world and look at the things we're engaged in and look how things go. I won't and mention other. There, the, there are other from publication. Art Scroll didn't. Art Scroll's picturing. Art Scroll's publishing women's pictures, and they didn't turn into Vogue. So there's a way to do it without turning into Vogue. But let's get off of this conversation because it probably makes people upset. You're upset you're at me losing. in both directions. Losing, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. no. Listen, it's, it's not a fight. It's not. I like it's, you a it's, lot, Robert. <laughs> it's not. It's not an argument. I don't think. I, I don't think I'm losing. I don't think I'm losing. I'm, I'm on record the same as I was before. I think it's a mistake. But as you said, it's not a deal breaker mistake. I'll even go further and tell you the people who are the most upset about it still subscribe and i call them out and tell them that you got to vote with your feet if you want to make a statement if their membership if their subscription rather i think in membership we're sure if their subscription went down you'd see the policy change quickly the reality is there are not enough people upset or there are not enough people who are upset and willing to cancel subscription people still love it it adds value they have the diversity it's it's being able to uh, bring other social change that they value. So in the end of the day, it's not what's doing it. But yeah, I want to ask you okay, constructively. Yeah, let me just say one thing. Well, a lot of other people who say that they would like to pick as a woman because they think they do, but deep down they're comforted by the fact that there's someone who's standing up for, I, I wouldn't call it traditional Judaism, because again, I don't know that it's rooted in halach. It was just the industry practice before we came along. They're happy that Yiddishkeit, they know that Yiddishkeit endures because people don't change. We're not so quick to change. Yeah. But let's but let's you be honest. We're talking you, about the Samsaifer Agada. We're not. We're not going to get. It's true. But surely, <laughs> if you want to, the Samsaifer taught us that we don't have to change. You don't have to give into to the. Chodesh you know, Asim But surely, if you want to really go, if you want to really go there, one could argue that 
the advertisements, the level of immodesty in its ostentatiousness, Pesach programs, European trips, silver, um, you know, uh, what's it called, charcuterie boards, that the level of immodesty in the magazine in its consumerism and advertising is worse than the slope of the shoulder of a woman who's completely covered. So it's not entirely consistent all the way through. Ellie, uh, I don't no. know if Ellie mentioned that. I don't remember. Did he tell you about it, Bobby? We went to Bobby, the whole editorial staff in Flappet for a meeting. The men, the women, everybody came in from Israel. We sat around this table. And he, he said this. He's like, you're, you know, you're killing us. You're upping their things because you're enabling them. So Ellie said, if Joshiva tells us never to take an ad from them again, from any upscale jeweler, you deserve this, you deserve that, or bugaboos, or charcuterie boards, or etc. We'll never take it again. But you should know. It'll probably go out of business. That means, or it'll be, you know, because like, you know, we're going to advertise uh, the guys who do Mishnah is Yaibi for you, maybe. And uh, and Kupada Yira. There's always Kupada Yira in apartments in Israel. Apartments in Israel. Wait, you just take out apartments mayor, in Israel for wine? Or yeah, Mayor Balanese. <laughs> then we're pretty much done. You know, he, there's, not, there's not that much. He says, it's, uh, he says, I have to think about it. But so uh, he asks him, uh, Ellie asks him. It's not Pasha. My, my point is. a question? Doshiva spoke at the Gouda Convention, right? So he says, yeah. He says, Doshiva, I saw the food at the Gouda Convention. It wasn't just a kiddush. We're talking about from when you came on Thursday night till when you left Sunday morning. It, you you were not hungry. You know what you feel like after a fast, you know, 45 minutes after you broke your fast? That's not, I shouldn't say Gouda. It's every convention in the firm world. It's every right. simcha of people of means. So why are you looking at Mishmah Hamikzim instead of, so Rebellion says, like, yeah, here, it was a good conversation. Look at the firm world and consumerism and consumption. And there's reasons we could explain. Maybe we could even understand why totally to do that. A lot of it comes from a very good place. A lot of it is rooted in some Chashavas and some Chashyantav, which, which is for sure holy. Uh, whatever the reasons are, to point the finger at us when we're just, look at us as a reflection. We're... I'm not pointing the finger. All I'm pointing the finger is that every community has its selective modesty and immodesty, right, its turned, selective we, extremism, its selective outrage. There's an ad running in the Trump community for uh, uh, chocolates that are based on CBD and uh, you know, either it's marijuana based or it's not. We didn't take them. We, it was not even a question. Yeah, the OU we, had it in their Pesach guide. I was very surprised. OU was machshurit. OU Antarctica. The Chasid is shahachshur too on the on the cannabis. But uh, we didn't take. They them. answered to a higher authority. <laughs> higher. Higher. You like that? <laughs> That's my Ashkosha. I'm getting a rabbi joke. It's excellent. <laughs> you know, rabbis like that when I was a kid. Yeah. This is this is that's really it's it's so much fun and the hour is getting late and we've taken and we've taken your time. First of all, you're mm-hmm. a Canadian, that's why you didn't put Nikki Haley on. If you were an American, you'd appreciate you would have had Nikki Haley on the cover. But um, coming, yeah. Uh. But coming back to you, coming back to your comment about social media. So tell us more about about that decision. Mishbacha, interesting. Mishbacha is on Twitter. Mishbacha, as you said, is on the internet. Women's pictures appear there. Um, can social media be used only as a tool to don't give in to the trolls? I, I, you know, I hit and run. I deposit. I drop a, a an article, a thought, a post, and I don't get into the comments for the same reason as you. You know, the the trolls who are there, they're just trying to get you in, and and you'll never get out. And and that's not what is the best use of any of our time. But why did you? Leave? And this is a perfect time to mention, by the way. Um, People follow Behind the Bima on Twitter for special clips and special uh, Behind the Bima opportunities. Behind the Bima on Twitter. So why did you leave? Why are you no longer engaged in those ways? Oh, my, can't my, you why use I it? My personal Twitter account. Yeah, yeah. Can't can't you use it in a healthy way without giving in or without entering those conversations? I, I think that what what I felt was you know imagine a debate between two people and one person has their microphone on and one person has the microphone off. I, I felt like there was this debate going on and and worldwide Orthodox Judaism 
being called to task and only one side is speaking, the other side is not being heard at all. So early on, I saw it as a personal shlich. Let's see, I'm a little presumptuous that way. I'm going to be the guy who's the spokesman of, I'm going to explain it. And I, I really engaged with everybody. I, I want to give you a recent example. There are, there are a couple of very loud people on Twitter, and I follow what's going on, who have made it, um, who, they've used COVID. That was going to be their, COVID is, is their opportunity to, to Haredi bash. And they make sure to tell you one out of every three posts, oh, I'm really Haredi. This is the community I love. And I only do this because I love Yiddishkeit, because I love Judaism, and you are falsifying Judaism. One of them, as some kind of a medical professional, wrote, um, she had written an email to the magazine about vaccinations before COVID struck. And she wanted to, to do, write an anti-vax article. And for whatever reason, our editor, our family first editor, Basigun, rejected the article. It could be any one of a million reasons. Mishpacha um, has no position on anti-pro-vaccination, but I'm fairly certain that every single person vaccinated their kids on staff. Uh, that, that, that's just based on my in, informal in-house data. Nobody has an anti-vax agenda for sure. But she didn't want to go there for whatever reason. Maybe it was business. Maybe she didn't like the quality of writing. Maybe it was the timing. So recently, in an attack on Mishpacha, this woman on Twitter shared the email from Basi to her. So under the guise of traditional Judaism, we're falsifying you're being either on any number in uh, Astavarim, sharing, uh, being Megal side, you're, you're sharing emails from somebody with their name, which is a form of Ritzicha, like Texas tells us, like the Gemara tells us. It, it's saying, um, if you, can, I, can I have 30 seconds? I, 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 it's fun to do this, Tyra. Can I say Now, now, you're at, now you ask? <laughs> can I say 30 seconds, Tyra? I want to do this. Sure. This. 30 it. seconds. Rav says, sure. Chazal, that Tamar and Eishas Baitifa were both with him Shemayim. Tamar was Hashem Shemayim when she lived uh, together with Yehuda, and Eishas Petifar saw in the thing that she was destined to live with, with Yaisaf and Tzadik, which was right through her, her daughter, who ended up marrying Yaisaf, married Yaisaf. So why do we remember Tamar as a Tzadikus and Eishas Petifar as the opposite of a Tzadikus? They both met Hashem Shemayim. Good question? Good one. Good question. So I heard from my rabbi, he said that, because what happened when they didn't get their way? Tamar didn't get her way. She really meant to Hashem Shemayim. She lived with Yehuda, because she wanted to be to, the, the prodigy come to her. She saw it wasn't going her way. You know what she did? She submitted to God's will. She said, okay, I tried. I thought this is what Hashem wanted. I'm ready to die. And ultimately, she didn't die. Eishas Petifar went crazy. When Yaisa said, no, 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 and her L'shem Shemayim wasn't working out, she lost her marbles and she went ballistic and she went, you know, and accused him of whatever she accused him. If you're L'shem Shemayim, then there's a way that people who are L'shem Shemayim behave. There's a way that people who are L'shem Shemayim talk. And there's a way that People who are trying accept defeat. I've accepted defeat many times. In these conversations, I can give you examples if you want of things I wrote that I wish I wouldn't have because people on Facebook explained it to me. But this is not the people who are trying don't go on Twitter and share emails and attack and start and they don't, and they don't stop. So I realize that the issue is not with Mishpacha or with Shirley Vassar. It's with themselves. Whatever's going on in their life. And I just felt bad. So I don't have to be, if you're having a bad day, I'm really sorry for you. We're not your whipping boy. Cultivate. So I closed my Twitter account. Why I keep Mishpachas? It's not me. It's me with a group of people who share the handle because that's the job. I think that you have to be out there if you're a media presence, especially we're engaged with a lot of secular politicians and a lot of secular people, a lot of non-Jewish people, and they check that. What's your next biography? Now, yeah. I, I have one that I'm working on, but at some point, the Rabbi Efren Goldberg story is important to think. Well, if you need oh, a Talmud to uh, interview about it, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, happy to share. I got, I got some. I good probably story. know him other than his wife. I'm probably <laughs> will you, uh, will you have two. a chapter yeah. called "My Defeat to Surly Besser" and <laughs> behind the <beamer? laughs> no, I think so. I think we'll have other rounds. Though. I'm working about it now. But as a Shashem, I never did this before, but I think it has the potential. What Rabbi Trank did for Chinuch and Rabbi did for Chinuch, this could do for the world of laymen. It's the biography of Paul Reichman, of Meisher Reichman. 
it's just a story of such dignity and such integrity and such the the role of a wealthy Balabas and Kalagasrol. It's I don't think that Kalagasrol in history. I don't know enough of the month if you were a Rothschild to, to say numbers. We're probably the biggest pop stock in history. This is a man who gave out hundreds of millions of dollars through the eighties, um, okay. and and with with such humility. And and none of the you know you didn't hear a lot. There were not a lot of demands made from him. Very very not flamboyant. And it's something I'm working on for a long time. I'm excited about it. I, I hope to have that soon, Mitchell. We're wow. looking forward to it. We're looking forward to it. Can you give us a preview of the Pesach edition of Mishpacha? Anything people should be looking for? So we, we don't like to talk about what's in the magazine until it comes out because uh, we've been burnt in the past from doing that. So I would rather, uh, hmm. I'd rather, we're doing a feature on monsters. <laughs> monsters <laughs> in the rabbit. Monsters of the rabbit. Monster. Monsters. Monsters are among us. Monsters. <laughs> You know, I have so to thank you, Investor, because we, we were really debating what to go with our perm edition of our of our shill newsletter. And then once the cover of Mishpacha came out, it became very simple for us. So uh, <laughs> we really appreciate it. I'm always thank you for that. Thank you for that, among other things. For and years. Also, um, I, I have to say, you know, I, I've seen a lot of people, um, I shouldn't say frustrated from covers, but we've had over the years people use that picture. You that wrong angle of me. I don't like the way this looks. You handled it so graciously. A mix of real bitachin. Your initial reaction was that I'm, I'm serious now. This is not a joke. The punchline, and real graciousness. You know, wasn't I wasn't thrilled with the way the cover looked at the end. Whatever the reason it came out that way, you handled it like a pro. I didn't really care. To me, it was all about getting the conversation started about the topic of the article, which it has. Do we still have the Cal Ripken streak going? By the way, is that still happening? Letters to the editor. How are we doing this week? You had a very nice run, but sometimes a nice run. Even Cal Ripken do it. Okay, fine. We had. Don't be that guy. Surely would share with me every week. Don't be that guy, please. No, no, no. Listen, I'm just curious. Still going. Nebuch, you know who helped me the most? Nebuch on the boy who wrote in explaining why he needed the girls' pictures. Nebuch on that boy. I love the conversation. I love the. I love what he said. I love. Yeah. I love the direction. Yeah, sure. He said. He said an interesting point. Said an interesting point, but he wouldn't have said it with his name. That's also an interesting. Have you debated the policy of allowing all these anonymous letters? If somebody's yeah. not willing to put their name to what they're saying, how much value is there to it? It's true, but look at this Bachem Shadokim. He would have never said it. He said something, and he spoke for a lot of Bachem. I think he angered a lot of other people, but he but he raised a good point. You know, he, with... got, he, got, he kept the conversation. He kept my streak alive. If I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, for that, I for that I thank him. Rabbi Surly Besser, thank you so much for spending your time thank with you us this evening. Well beyond, well beyond what we asked. Here. You guys are great. Thank we, you we for had, having me. We had a great Good time. Thank you, you so much. Shabbat and we'll keep the conversation Shabbat. going. Thank you so much. We look forward to continuing. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, I'm so, first of all, I cannot wait for that biography to come out. Rabbi Brody, you and I have some good stuff. I think we're going to be the students that are going to be interviewed. Yeah, the problem is going to be mad at me or you. <laughs> we've got we've gone over time we've gone over time let's finish our other topics i may need a couch to sleep on and uh, then we can uh, wrap it up and get back to shabbos say that this, um, this is the uh, most photogenic group of rabbis he's ever seen i think he did say that i'm pretty sure i heard that too so sure two of the that. topics we wanted to uh, close out on one is last week we pointed out that myers leonard who was playing for the miami heat injured for the rest of this season and actually was uh, traded today but um part of the gaming community and in the gaming community where people watch you play a video game uh, he said a terrible anti-semitic slur a terrible terrible anti-semitic word um, really horrific really terrible was called out 
universally, unanimously, across the board, but did something I think that was very impressive, and that is his apology. We spoke about it last week. Uh, I was very impressed by his apology, where he took responsibility, took extreme ownership, didn't say, I'm sorry if you felt bad, I'm sorry if you were offended, said, I offended, I take responsibility, I said a horrific thing, I'm going to educate myself, I'm going to improve myself, I'm going to take the time to do it right, and um, and I'm going to try to make the world a better place to learn from my mistake. He said it really well. His uh, person working with him is a childhood friend of mine I've known forever, Matthew Hultzig, who is a really fantastic individual, and um, put us together, and we had an opportunity to meet last week. We spent 45 minutes in conversation in which Myers was moved to tears several times in accepting the responsibility and the pain that he learned that he caused our greater Jewish community and was really committed to be reading books and meeting Holocaust survivors and spending time understanding uh, the story of anti-Semitism, the story of the Jewish people. And what I think impressed me most is wants to use the platform that he has uh, and the platform he has in that gaming community in particular to work on and bring an awareness to the gaming community of just how unacceptable and intolerable it is, whether it's an anti-Semitic slur or any other slur, the power of language, the power of speech, the importance of the words that we use, and to try to bring that conversation to that community in a way that can really, really change things. He, he, he did not meet with me so that I would come on and talk about it. He is not at a point where he's trying to improve his image. I'm sure the cynic out there will assume that's exactly what it was, but I can tell you, having met with him and been in touch with him since then, that I really find him to be very, very genuine. And and I'll tell you why I raise it. Again, I asked him permission to raise it. He didn't ask me to raise it. Um, and even though I invited him on behind the bima, he said it's not time. He said I have to learn about the Jewish community right. privately. I'm reflecting. I need to bear responsibility for this. I'm not here to take advantage of the moment. Why am I raising it? Because I think it's really important to live in a world that allows for forgiveness. There are people who've done unforgivable things and they haven't bothered asking for forgiveness. And those are the individuals that we should be outraged by. But somebody who takes all the proper steps and does everything we can ask of them and asking for forgiveness, you know, even the great Surly Besser says he said things, maybe even tonight, that he regrets or shouldn't have said. We all have and have made those mistakes, and I think it's all about how we react to them. And I, I think I want to live in a world that, that does forgive. I can't speak on behalf of the Jewish people. Nobody uh, gave us that license to forgive, but I can only tell you that I had a very genuine and uh, really, really heartwarming conversation, and I hope it continues with him, and I, I hold, hold him accountable to, to do the things so, that he says he will. Is he coming for Obviously, Shabbat? I agree with you, but you also acknowledge that there are certain things that are unforgivable. Now, I mean, there are certain lines that once you cross, we could forgive you as a person, but the action, what you brought into the world as a result of your action, I'm not saying that is, that's the case in this instance, but you would even agree that there are certain crimes which are so heinous, which are so yeah. above the pale, that you know, we can't just forgive and we can't just accept and we can't allow that person to just move on. Uh, th there are tshuvas that deal with, I remember a tshuva that deals with a Nazi who was responsible right. for the death of Jews who it's then wanted one. to convert to Judaism. And it was a question, if they met all the criteria, right. can you reject them from allowing them to convert to Judaism on the grounds that you cannot forgive what they had done? This was a machlokis, a major debate between Elie Wiesel and Simon Wiesenthal in right. The Sunflower. Was that the name of his book? Sunflower, Simon, yeah. Simon Wiesenthal talks about forgiving a Nazi on his deathbed who asked for forgiveness. And I think it was a big debate between the two. So, of course, there are things that are unforgivable. But an NBA player playing in a gaming community on Twitch, I think it's called, where they watch you play, and he, he released a terrible slur, but he right away says, that was terrible, I take responsibility, and I'm going to learn, I'm going to change, I'm going to grow, I'm going to make it better, and I'm going to use this as a teachable moment. I, and, I don't know why. And we that comes back him. to our biography conversation, because that guy, in my mind, goes from zero to hero. In other words, I'm inspired by stories like that, because we've all made mistakes in our lives. We None of us want to be known as the 
you know, summation of our worst mistake in this world. And so we are inspired by people who make egregious errors and do the right thing. And they, they try to come back from it and they do it authentically and they do it in a genuine way and they reach out to the community and they learn and they, that, that's what we want from people. So I'm, I'm all, I'm, I'm with you. Matthew Hiltzig is, is his barometer of sincerity and truth. I trust implicitly and with my life. If Matthew Hiltzig is representing and helping him, then, then I believe it. And I don't want to violate his confidence, but I'll tell you that, he, again, he was moved to tears when talking about the thought that his children or grandchildren will Google his name and this is what they'll find. And what I tried to say to wow. him was wow. the way you react and what you do with it now, you're writing the next page of Google. You're writing the next search. So if you transform the gaming community, if you bring a message using your platform that calls for greater sensitivity in how we speak, then that's the story that they'll read and that they'll find about you. And that's true for every one of us. It doesn't have to be about him. It is and can be true for every one of us in terms of, in terms of uh, how we react. Can we just think of, of one thing in, that really defines our society? It's that millions of people watch someone else play a video game. <laughs> I didn't know that that happens. I mean, I only know it for my, my kids, but the whole thing is so, I mean, I guess that's what sports are, but at least there you're like in person, you're with people. Here I'm no, watching you engage in something. No, it's the same thing. You guys are doing nothing when you watch sports. Go play sports. Play. Get on the that's field. It's an interesting Exercise. perspective. Rabbi Moskos, what do you say to that? It's an interesting perspective, Rabbi Brody. Rabbi Brody, who's not a sports fan, is saying, what's the difference if you watch a guy who's hitting a ball or throwing a ball versus sure, you're watching a, a guy who's holding a joystick and playing a game? There's a world of difference. Yeah, One is what's a communal experience. When I'm watching a sports event, I'm not watching a sports event as an individual. I'm part of yeah. uh, fandom. I'm part of Red Sox Nation. I'm part of the Patriots community, right? I'm part of something. You go to a game, you experience it together with people. You have a, you watch it with your son. Here, you're watching a guy play a video game that I could be playing. First of all, what do you think about the news that two forces that are so unlikable oh and evil gracious. are joining up together? The fact that LeBron James is going to own a piece of the Red Sox. That's every just perfect. That's just perfect for <laughs> me. But I will, let's go to our last topic. The night is getting late, and there's a lot of Shabbos Hagadol yet to do, and that is the Aguna situation. We organized a rally here in Boca. There was a parallel rally that was organized in Lakewood. Um, not to distance ourselves, but we were not coordinating the Lakewood rally, not responsible for what happened there, uh, weren't in charge of it, um, and, and, and nor did we or I or anyone I know endorse putting up phone numbers of anybody on the internet. There's a lot that's going on that's not necessarily connected or shouldn't be associated or traced back to the, even the people who are working on this. Um, we're responsible for what's happening in Boca, the mediation, the conversations, the offers, the negotiations, ultimately the rally that we had. And uh, I'll just tell you again that um, Devora has extended herself beyond, I think, even reason, certainly beyond ex what should be expected of her, agreeing to go to the Basin of Aaron's choice on the issues that matter to him, as long as he gives the get first. And he still refuses, which tells you everything. Uh, it tells you everything. So um, we will continue to be there. We're going to announce the next rally, and we're going to continue to come back. And the weather, the heat's about to rise in Boca. Temperature's going to get hot outside. And we're going to still rally. It doesn't matter because that's what one does. If it were Rain a sister, if it was a daughter, that's that's what we do. So, you know, he may think that he weathered the first rally, the first round, and therefore now we're all going to forget and go back to our lives and Pesach will come in the way. None of us want to be doing this. This is the most unpleasurable thing. It, it feels yucky and it feels like a chil Hashem and none of us want to air this dirty laundry publicly. That's why we waited this long and didn't do it. But it's just gotten to a point that how much longer should we wait? Doesn't she deserve to go free? So we had a large, successful rally, a great testament to this community. I'd say 90 plus percent of the people who came yesterday never met Devora. Never met her. Couldn't, couldn't pick her up, 
couldn't pick her out of a lineup. But they heard there was a call and they answered it. And um, I'm proud of our community. Very proud of our community for that. And we'll continue to do it. Continue to do it. And we made a major Kiddush Hashem at the rally as well. There were individuals walking by, people who happened upon the rally, who were very inspired by the notion that Jews in America can come up and stand against one of their own, who's a recalcitrant, and uh, not giving his wife a get. And they spoke very passionately about how inspired they were by the Orthodox community stepping forward in this. And I know all of us found his speech very inspiring as well. Yeah, it, I got an email. There are people who said, how dare you have invited people to bring their children to the rally? Terrible to expose children to this. And, and I thought just the opposite. It's terrible that we have to do this rally. But once we're doing it, what a beautiful thing to teach our children, you know, like the Israeli army, nobody will be left behind, that God forbid in life, if they ever had to confront something like this, they should know nobody will be left behind. Jews stand up for other Jews. We stand up for human beings, that we care about one another. That's that's a very important education and teachable moment. Just okay. Realized. I froze. And on that note, <laughs> I, I froze. Hello. Froze. No, no, no. Just your face. It's okay. I'm here. You're back. Okay. You're back. On that note, we'll end it right there. Any closing thoughts, rabbis? Pesach, the holiday of freedom. Free yourself. Unburden yourself. Break the yeah. habits. Yeah, Beautiful. I'm looking forward to this one. You know, normally we do a big outreach one. We didn't do it last year either. But I'm looking forward to next year. It's going to be the biggest seder we've ever had at Boca Raton Synagogue. Gonna have hundreds of people, but unfortunately, it's not happening this year. But we're gonna celebrate with the family. It's gonna be great. Beautiful. Enjoy. All right. We'll see everybody next Wednesday night at nine o'clock. Thank you for listening to Behind the Bema. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week for another peek behind the Bema.